Kia ora, welcome comrades. Welcome to Where's My Jetpack, a politics and pop culture podcast with sci-fi and socialist leanings. To celebrate the third anniversary of overlooked superhero flick The Rocketeer, this is the long-delayed third part of our retro-futuristic retrospective on The Rocketeer. You can hear the first two parts in our first ever episode, Wanting to Believe, as well as our 2019 Christmas bonus episode. Enjoy! All right, and the other really smart, brilliant Easter egg that they put in was that in the scene at the South Seas Club, Neville Sinclair actually greeted Clark Gable. And of course, this was based on the little known fact that Gable was Adolf Hitler's favorite actor. And during World War II, Hitler enjoyed watching private screenings of Gable's movies and even eventually directed Hermann Goering to offer a $5,000 reward to anyone who could capture Gable and bring him to Germany alive and unscathed, of course, after becoming frustrated that German forces weren't able to capture Gable as he was fighting over in England. And I think that's an interesting one to point out, too, because that's very similar to Kim Jong-un kidnapping the South Korean director and an actress. Yeah, and forcing them to make his... The Pogasari. Like, brilliant kaiju movie. Yeah, that, that whole that whole incident is pretty horrific, and that shows what would happen if dictators would get their hands on your actors. Let's move into the direction and director of this movie. This movie has the same creative DNA as Lucas and Spielberg and Indiana Jones, and, you know, that makes sense because director Joe Johnston, of course, won and shared an Oscar for best effects, visual effects for Raiders of the Lost Ark and worked at ILM and on a lot of the Star Wars movies. And, you know, this, I think as well, could have been a really good comic book movie decades ahead of the current era. And I think with the special effects that they had at their beck and call, even though dated, you know, the FX and mats and the, the style of go motion that they used to achieve the effects actually uh, help it now, I think. So as far as Joe Johnston's concerned, I believe he's a very competent director with a long history, again, in special effects and aerial filming as well. And he seems more into the technical side and is often the hired gun on different franchises he did not create. And of course, those are often George Lucas and Steven Spielberg franchises. And his movies often don't do well at the box office either, but, but have made fans. Some of them are cult classics like The Rocketeer. And they aren't the worst movies, but they often aren't the best movies either. Johnston is no auteur, and there is nothing wrong with that, but, you know, he doesn't seem to have any big ambitions either. He will take on big movies with big budgets, and then he'll do what the studio wants. And in recent years, I would say that his flexibility towards studio notes and then tampering from the studios, you know, killed 2010's The Wolfman due to Universal's tampering and constant changing of the story tone and even the design of The Wolfman, which changes several times across the movie. And I believe he was quite vocal fighting for the kind of movie he was trying to make but lost and looked like a director with a dead career at that point, or at least he was about to be put in timeout like Joel Schumacher and, and Oliver Stone in director jail. 
you know, after their massive studio bombs until his next movie. You know, for the context of how this movie came to be, the resume of the director and the creator of the comic are very important. And some of the movies I think that Johnston has directed and worked on are very familiar. They'll be instantly recognizable and have some stylistic through lines and share Lucas, Spielberg, and ILM connections. In 1989, he directed the family classic, co-written by the writers of The Reanimator and Dolls, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, for Disney. In 1991, of course, he directed the, this movie. In 1993, he directed one episode of George Lucas's Young Indiana Jones Chronicles on ABC. He directed the live-action sequences for this movie starring Macaulay Culkin in 1994, this animated bomb, The Page Master. See, I had not realized this one. I thought somebody else directed this movie. He directed the 1995 original, strangely dark and mean-spirited Robin Williams starring Jumanji. Love that movie. It's a cult classic, you know? How good it did in the box office is, is debatable, you know? I don't think it did super well. As a kid, that opening with the being sucked into the board game terrified me, you know, for a kid's movie. Yeah. It's got to some sort of edgy horror territory, but yeah, it's fun. Yeah, I think that's one of the edgier ones, the last times where he got to be kind of edgy with the movie, to be honest. In 1999, again, he directed a, an episode and a segment for the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. And in 2001, he directed a passable Jurassic Park 3 after Spielberg chose to pass after the less than stellar uh, follow-up The Lost World, which is one of Spielberg's few bombs. Yeah, personally, I love that, though. I love Lost World. I think it's a great film. It has its moments. It has its uh, gold-bloominess it, that it has, but yeah, this is some, there's some problems with that movie. And so... Three, I think, is a perfectly acceptable B-movie, basically. Like, it's fine. Very watchable. Like... Yeah, I think it's just a little too short. I think it's maybe ten minutes too short. It's a short, passable action flick, and, you know, it was basically created as a placeholder until Jurassic 4, and then we'd ultimately get Jurassic World in 2015. And again, this was the beginning of Universal making, you know, Dark Universe. This was the first time they tried and failed. They tried and failed the second time with the action movie version of Dracula, and then they failed again with the remake of The Mummy. But their first attempt at bringing back the Universal Monsters was by tapping Johnston to direct 2010's The Wolfman, starring Benicio Del Toro and Anthony Hopkins with the problems I mentioned above. And that could have been a good movie, but I noticed there were several werewolf movies that had very similar studio problems around the same time. Wes Craven had a movie he did with... Christina Ricci, of course. Uh, her and Jesse Eisenberg and uh, several other actors were in this movie. And uh, there was this werewolf movie. And again, in that one, they kept changing the design of the werewolf across the entire production of the movie. And it kept screwing with the tone and how scary the movie was. So there seems to be a problem with werewolf movies in America. And that's why we got great movies from Canada like uh, Ginger Snaps. In uh, 2011, of course... Johnston came full circle directing Captain America, the first Avenger for Disney and Marvel. 
and he did it in much the same retro World War II style of the Rocketeer, which has to be on purpose. I reckon that pulled it off a little bit better. Like, I think it did go a little bit more for the camp. Particularly, I love the sequences where he's performing Captain America on stage, punching Adolf Hitler repeatedly. Well, Johnston wrote those songs and the lyrics, yeah. I think it was worth it just for watching Captain America punch Adolf Hitler. Over and over. Yeah, repeatedly, yeah. Uh, Like, even if the rest of the movie was terrible, that moment would have been worth it. You know, I don't think the rest of the movie was terrible. I think it had the problem... I said said even if. I know, I think the rest of the movie's problem was that it just didn't have an edge. Yeah, it does make a good, solid, like, period kind of B-movie, though. Like, it it does what it does do well. Yeah, and I think it keeps to the tone of the time period, just like The Rocketeer does. And again, you know, all this that led to him being the director of that. So I kind of feel like he has this kind of abusive relationship with Disney because there was a lot of acrimony and he definitely didn't want to come back to do another Rocketeer as well because of what they all went through. But they somehow got him back last year in this Nutcracker in the Four Realms. Who knows why that movie even existed? But there's another thing that he, he was a second unit director, actually, on a movie I really like called Batteries Not Included. And an Again, like The Rocketeer, this was an example of a project that actually branches out into more great projects, especially if you look at who wrote it and you look at who was involved. Because Johnston was production manager on 1987 Amblin's Batteries Not Included that was originally intended to be a vignette on Amazing Stories, actually, the TV anthology show. But Spielberg actually liked the idea so much that he wanted to make it into a theatrical release. And the interesting connections is this was directed and co-written by Matthew Robbins, who was a longtime frequent Lucas Spielberg and and, uh, Guillermo del Toro writing collaborator. He's co-written a lot of Guillermo del Toro's movies with him. I think Crimson Peak is one of them. And also uh, often Stephen King adapter uh, Mick Garris and the now famous Iron Giant and Incredibles, as well as the aforementioned director of Tomorrowland, Brad Bird, who started out on The Simpsons. He even started out. Yeah, Brad Bird even started out on Amazing Stories, I think directing Family Dog with Tim Burton. I loved Batteries Not Included as a kid. I never realized it was uh, linked with uh, The Iron Giant, which is another fantastic kids film. And the other people that co-wrote on it as well, Brent Maddock and S.S. Wilson, who wrote the Tremors movies. So you have this pedigree for this cute little uh, Spielberg movie, this little Amblin movie uh, that spun out of Amazing Stories. And so he had a part in that too, as well as in the design with the robots and stuff. Johnston's visual effects career, again, is very impressive. He was an art director, visual effects, effects illustrator and designer, and uh, miniature and optical effects unit person over at ILM, across the Star Wars trilogy, even the original 1978 Battlestar Galactica, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which again, he won an Oscar on that one. He was art director on Temple of Doom, And so that's one hell of a streak for your work environment to get experience from. And of course, he even wrote episodes on the Star Wars droids cartoon that Nelvana did. And he unfortunately was production designer on the 1984 and 1985, the Ewok adventure 
in Ewok's Battle for Endor TV movies. So ouch and ouch. And this is interesting. He was an associate producer on George Lucas and Ron Howard's Willow in 1988, which is pretty cool. Of course, now he's executive producer on Captain America. This is one that I had no idea on. This is what some people were pointing out to as something that kind of ruined the last quarter of Howard the Duck, where he was a miscellaneous crew member as the aerial sequence designer in 1989's Always, and he also was the ultralight sequence designer on 1986's George Lucas produced Howard the Duck. And of course, that was probably, again, the second worst part of the movie after the human duck sex. And the thing that really blew me away was that in his animation uh, design credit for the 1999 Iron Giant, he designed the Iron Giant. That's amazing. So to me, I think, you know, the the commonalities and the through lines here, and you see how the Rocketeer seems to have in common with Captain America is that, again, I think all the edges seem to be sanded off and the peril and threat is mitigated by camp. And of course, Disney kiddified the Rocketeer. And to a degree, I think much of the Marvel movies get kiddified. So, you know, how much of the swashbuckling period pulp genre homage style and cool ideas can really get through uh, Disney interference. And this movie really shows that and how the writers kept getting hired and fired or rehired and scenes rewritten. And as much as he was hired for the style of the Rocketeer over on Captain America, I kind of wonder if Disney also thought that, well, we kind of broke him on that on the last one. And they figured that he would back down on creative choices on uh, Captain America. Imagine how much better, you know, the Rocketeer or even Captain America would have been, you know, maybe not with Johnson or, but with like a great director who got it just like he did. And, you know, without the studio interference, I mean, maybe it would be completely impossible with a Marvel movie, but with something like this, you know, imagine if Johnston could have gone all the way or somebody like him could have had something to say or more, you know, of an auteur making this. So, you know, my point is on his end, you know, he worked at the technical and the creative uh, level and gets the aesthetic of Star Wars and indie and all these movies, but like can't execute it as a movie when he's making a movie himself, you know? And in that regard, I think he's very much like George Lucas, you know, technical guy over artist, you know? So I wanted to get into some of the other connections here too, because just like with, uh, the connections that that blossomed out of work on batteries not included the rocketeer even branches out into more great projects and again there are multiple creative connections to the 90s the flash and the rocketeer behind the scenes the writers of the rocketeer were also the writers on that show and dave stevens who created the comic book rocketeer was also the conceptual designer creating the red flash suit that john wesley ship wore on that show and in the present on the new CW DC superhero shows. And so you had during that time period, you had Batman, the Rocketeer, Batman Returns, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You had uh, the Flash, Dick Tracy, the Shadow and the Phantom. So there was this brief, interesting art deco retro pulp noir renaissance, you know, in film and TV. And I think the Rocketeer even was originally supposed to be preceded in theaters 
by a Roger Rabbit short that was going to be called Hair in My Soup, but that, of course, never got made. And I think the other cool thing when it comes to the Easter eggs as well that they threw in that you could see just like with Roger Rabbit or Chinatown and a lot of these is the Hollywood Land sign that you see in this and how one of Neville Sinclair's final lines is, I'll miss Hollywood, and he does as he crashes into the land portion of the Hollywood Land sign, which is now the Hollywood sign, which historically that actually existed and was built in 1923 to promote this real estate property. And there's a whole history where it was given to the city of Los Angeles. And in 49, the Chamber of Commerce entered into a contract with the city uh, Los Angeles Parks to repair and rebuild the sign. And they stipulated that land be removed and just spell Hollywood to reflect the district rather than the housing development. So this is kind of a neat little apocrypha what happened to the sign, you know, because there's always little things like that in different movies. As we were talking before with the problems with this movie and like with how this could have turned out much better, this movie had a very rocky production history with a lot of studio interference. And it actually had quite a few writers on it, uh, some pretty good ones. Uh, the two that ended up writing it and working on The, the Flash was Danny Bilson and Paul DeMio. Director William Deere also had a hand in writing it, as well as script doctor Frank Darabont doing some uncredited work on the screenplay, as he did on uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 and several other movies. So if you look at the history of this, okay, Dave Stevens creates the comic in 82 immediately sells it to Steve Miner, who's still around as a horror movie director, I think, at this point, in 83. But he strayed too far from the original, so the rights reverted to Stevens. And then 85, he gave it to writers Danny Bilson and DeMio, and that seems to be where it really kicks off. And what's really interesting is, okay, he gives them a free option on the rights, and he actually liked their ideas for The Rocketeer, and he felt like they were really good tributes to the 1930s serials, and he really liked their dialogue, and that's the best thing that he critiqued about the movie is, is how they were able to keep the dialogue uh, non-anachronistic or whatever. So you had Stevens, Bilson, and DeMio. They considered actually making The Rocketeer as a low-budget film shot in black and white, and funded by independent investors. And their plan was to make the film a complete homage to Republic's Commando Cody serials and use a cast largely associated with character actors. That seems to be the one thing that carried over. However, that same year, the trio approached William Deere to direct and co-write, and uh, they eventually dropped the low-budget idea. They kept the comic book's basic plot intact, but fleshed it out to include a Hollywood setting and a climactic battle against the Nazi Zeppelin, which was Deere's idea. And of course, they tweaked Cliff's girlfriend, as, as I mentioned above. And actually, you know, in the comics, again, she kept the same job, not unlike Betty Page of being a nude model, to a Hollywood extra to be more family friendly. So, of course, that definitely would have never flown with Disney. So they basically started pitching it in 1986 to major film studios and were all turned down. And here's a quote. Uh, this is in 1986, long before Batman or Dick Tracy or anything similar, Stevens explained. In those days, no studio was interested at all in an expensive comic book movie. We got there about three years too early for her own good. 
Walt Disney Studios eventually accepted The Rocketeer because they believed the film had toyetic potential and appeal for merchandising. And The Rocketeer was then set to be released through the studio's Touchstone Pictures label. And of course, uh, Stevens, Bilson, DeMio, and Deere all signed a contract which would permit them to make a trilogy of Rocketeer films. And unfortunately, I think this is the beginning of the problems where Disney uh, studio chairman Jeffrey Katzenberg switched the film from Touchstone over to Walt Disney Pictures. And according to Stevens, of course, immediately everything Betty, anything else adult, went right out with the bathwater. And they really tried to shoehorn into a kitty property so that they could sell toys. All they really wanted at the end of the day was the name. And initially, Disney executives, in their brilliance, wanted to set the film in contemporary times out of concern that a period piece might not appeal to a large audience. Kind of killing the whole point of the project, really. And that's kind of the point of Hollywood, you know? This is where great ideas go to die. He has this great period piece that's full of kitsch and nostalgia, and it's period-specific to the pulps and everything. Let's let's set it in 1991. I mean, this kind of touches on what interests us about it for this podcast, is it's kind of a retro-futuristic thing. And it looks... Anyway, like it's not to the degree we're interested in with sort of utopian imaginings of the future, but it was a time when like people, you know, people imagined jetpacks. And so this is a whole film that's really based around that, around what the jetpack might enable. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of retro-futuristic vision. So to then set it in contemporary times, like in the 90s, the idea of the jetpack has a very different resonance as during, you know, World War II. So basically, Bilson and DeMio argued that the success of the Indiana Jones trilogy proved that moviegoers would enjoy an adventure film set in the 1930s, and the studio finally agreed. Bilson and DeMio then submitted their seven-page film treatment to Disney, but the studio put their script through an endless series of revisions. And over five years, Disney again fired and rehired them three times. DeMio explained that Disney felt that they needed a different approach to the script, which meant bringing in someone else. But those scripts were thrown out and we were always brought back on. He said, quote, executives would like previously excised dialogue three months later. So basically they throw something out, but then they like it three months later. Yeah. Just being petty. I've had editors like that where they like, they say, you know, they tell you to replace a line and they tell you to replace it. And then you just go back to the original and then they're like, yep, they accept that. It's like, do you realize you rejected this the first time around? Basically scenes had been thrown out two years ago were then put back in. So he was like, what was the point. One of Bilson and DeMio's significant revisions to the script over the years was to make Cliff and Jenny's romance more believable and avoid cliche aspects that would stereotype Jenny as a damsel in distress, as we were just talking about. Uh, the numerous project delays forced Deer to drop out as director, and Joe Johnston, who was a fan of the comic book, immediately offered his services as director when he found out Disney owned the film rights. Johnston was quickly hired, and pre-production started in early 1990. So I think there, again, he showed that he was able to maybe put a movie in quick turnaround. So after the duo's third major rewrite, Disney finally greenlit The Rocketeer. 
you know, I think Johnston was able to get all the really good people behind the scenes on this due to his work on all the other Star Wars and Indiana Jones movies. And so they had an impressive top rate cinematographer that had worked on, I think, Indiana Jones and maybe Back to the Future. And I think as well as with the editor. And Dave Stevens gave the film's uh, production designer, Jim Bissell, and his two art directors his entire reference library pertaining to the Rocketeer at the time period including blueprints for hangers and bleachers, schematics for building the auto gyro, photos and drawings of the Bulldog Cafe, the uniforms of the circus staff, and contacts for uh, locating the vintage aircraft that were to be used even. So he even knew where to find the real planes. And Stevens uh, remembers that basically they, they literally just took the reference and built the sets. <laughs> and studio interference almost even fucked up the helmet. And that's where I just get really exasperated. Again, like with setting it in, in the, you know, in the in present times. It's like, again, why are you making this movie if you're just going to do this? And Disney originally intended to change the Rocketeer's trademark helmet design completely. The brilliant president, Michael Eisner, wanted a straight NASA-type helmet, but director Johnston threatened to quit production on the Rocketeer. Disney relented, but only after creating a number of prototype designs that were ultimately rejected by the filmmakers. Stevens asked Johnston for one week to produce a good helmet design. He proceeded to work with a sculptor he knew and made a cast of the film's main stuntman's head, and then they brainstormed ideas with the help of his sketches and they produced a helmet that the filmmakers agreed looked appropriate from all the angles and in most respects it was identical to the helmet design stevens had used for the comic series and i feel like the well-designed helmet rudder you know looks really great but i think like when it comes to like this being usable in reality i still every the time i was watching this i kept thinking like like shouldn't the rocket pack be burning his ass and his legs off i kind of feel like the design of the of like the the one that that james bond had in thunderball you know where the it's away from you it kind of seems like the better design but uh well i guess that not going for realism yeah, in the comic, it's just like one straight missile. You know, it's like a big bullet on his back, you know, in the comic. But other, otherwise, it looks the same. Everything else looks the same. So the visual effects were designed by ILM. Johnston's insistence on a realistic flying rocket man led ILM to devise a lifelike Cliff Secord model that was filmed in stop-motion animation coupled with an 18-inch figurine that was manipulated by hand in the go-motion process to create motion blur. And the uh, speeded up moviola effects were then used to advantage in the air circus sequence where a combination of live action and stop motion animation was also employed. And uh, I think those scenes mostly hold up. I think we think we agree that a lot of the matte painting stuff actually holds up really good and looks really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think those are the kind of the highlights of the film is just the, the jetpack sequences themselves. And I really like the, the Zeppelin scene, and I 
think there was some minor CGI use there, just as I think there was in similar Zeppelin scene in Indiana Jones and the uh, Last Crusade. They, they said that all the stuff I found, uh, the whole attack on the Nazi Zeppelin was actually filmed over four months near Six Flags Magic Mountain Amusement Park in Valencia, California through pickups and the remaining visual effects took place at ILM's headquarters in San Rafael and Hamilton Air Force Base. There they constructed a 12-foot scale model of the Zeppelin which was photographed against matte paintings that resembled 1938 Los Angeles for intercutting purposes and the Zeppelin explosion sequence alone cost $400,000 so Disney must must have been happy with that but uh, I think that really was a, a great climax to the movie it was really cool and the way Sinclair goes out was pretty awesome okay so with the release you had the marketing where Disney seemed to be in their element while doing everything they could to really ruin this movie behind the scenes but they really went nuts with the merchandise and that is something I do remember from the time period. All kinds of tie-in endorsements with candy, food, computer games, novelizations, even one written by Peter David, which is interesting. Toys, posters, trading cards, pins, patches, buttons, t-shirts, and children's clothing. And I think there was even a graphic novel version of, of the movie. And then, you know, all of this was licensed to coincide with the film's opening. And it was very interesting as well as in keeping with all the Art Deco designing uh, within the movie, they actually premiered the movie at the 1100 seat El Capitan Theater on June 19, 1991. And this was the first premiere to take place at the El Capitan in more than two years due to an Art Deco-like restoration project Disney had been working on. When the released on home video market in 1991 to 1992, in both Laserdisc and VHS and beta video formats, that goes back, the Rocketeer earned an additional 23.18 million in rentals. So I think, you know, this shows that this is a movie that kind of picked up steam later as a cult classic. It, it got no love from Disney for the longest time because like when the first Region 1 DVD came out, there was no special features on it or anything. But it seems like the 20th anniversary edition Blu-ray is much better and has better stuff on it. And they're starting to maybe show some appreciation for the movie. The box office on this was, this was again a, a movie that cost 35 to 40 million dollars and there was just a lot of money back then and i guess that was probably close to maybe what 80 100 now maybe i don't know in adjusted dollars but basically when it was released it only earned 9.6 million dollars in its opening weekend so even for back then it wasn't good and again you know number four behind robin hood prince of thieves and that movie and its song was the big thing of the summer and uh, they only grossed uh, $46.6 million in the U.S. Again, half of a $35 to $40 million budget and such a big advertising budget that it was a complete commercial disappointment. And outside the U.S. and Canada, it, you know, it didn't do well either. And it also failed in Britain and it only grossed just over a million dollars. So what's really strange though is it's only, it got a really good cult classic, cult standing or, or fan base in Japan. 
outside of here. And that's 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 very interesting. The critical responses, I think, hold up very well. And I think the people who know their shit and had the good taste back then, like Leonard Malton and uh, Roger Ebert, they I think they uh, they got it. And uh, so if you look back even now... I really think Leonard Bolton has good taste. <laughs> yeah, I think so. He, he, teaches, he teaches a class, uh, too. He, he's pretty... He's, I think he's pretty good. Uh, that doesn't mean he's a good reviewer. <laughs> I, used to, I used to get his mentions. Uh, yeah, I used to read the Leonard Bolton film guide every year. And I, I'm, I'm not... I'm, I'm not... I'm much more of a Roger Ebert fan. I think he's like... Critic. I mean, uh, for one thing, even when I disagree with Roger Ebert, he's interesting. Whereas Leonard Bolton, I don't know, he's just a bit, he's like the normie reviewer, I guess. I don't know. When I, never, I, when I, I read their reviews, it's like, even when I disagree, I see where they're coming from. I get I get their tastes, even if I don't agree with their tastes. You know, I like directors. I'm a big Ebert fan. I like people like that. Yeah, I'm a big Ebert fan. Did not. Not as much of uh, Siskel. Siskel was a little bit pedantic uh, when it came to things. Roger Ebert, I think, was way ahead of his time on on, on several movies that turned out to be classics. And uh, yeah. he was a writer himself. It's an odd one. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, he wrote um, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. I don't know if that qualifies yeah. as being a... Um, that's a, but that's a, that's a cult classic in its own right. See, he okay. put his he put his his, his uh, money where his mouth is. There, you know, not many critics have done mm. that. And uh, mm. I, I again, I recommend to watch the Roger Ebert tr- uh, commentary track of Dark City, where he's commenting on the movie. It's really good, and because uh, he really enjoyed that movie, he was somebody that really. Uh, who, who really advocated for that movie when it came out. And, uh, but if you look at like all the scores now of, of, of all the stuff then and Rotten Tomatoes, 63%, that's pretty damn good. Uh, of all the critics coming in out of 60 reviews collected, Metacritic, 61 out of 100. You know, so it's like, again, cinema score, grade A minus on a scale of A to F. So it's like if this was something that came out now at that range, I mean, that's like a B or a C movie, you know, it's not bad. And uh, so I will say from Roger, I'll read from Roger Ebert's piece here. He said, uh, noting its homages to the film serials of the 30s and 50s, he enjoyed the film. Although Ebert cited the visual effects as being state-of-the-art, he described them as charmingly direct as those rockets in the Flash Gordon serials, the ones with sparklers hidden inside them, yeah. uh, which were pulled on wires in front of paper mache mountains. See, you get what he's going for there. And Malton thought that the film captures the look of the 30s as well as the gee whiz innocence of Saturday matinee serials, but it's talky and takes too much time to get where it's going. And he thought Dalton has fun as a villain patterned after Errol Flynn. Leonard Malton, I will recommend, he has a, uh, a short video that he did where he does the history of these pulp movies, especially the, uh, the Commando Cody ones and the ones that Republic did. And it's, uh, it's pretty good. Uh, it's it's like maybe forty five minute hour uh, doc, little mini documentary he did about these kinds of movies because he definitely is a fan of uh, serials 
And uh, yeah, Peter Travers, whose, whose taste has always gone up and down. It's interesting that he thought it was one of the best films of the summer. He said, it's the kind of movie magic we don't see much anymore. And he continued, the kind that charm us rather than bully us into suspending disbelief. I like that statement, and I think that kind of kind of sizes it up pretty well. And uh, some thought that, like the Art Deco, was they're focusing on style over substance, uh, ripping off uh, Indiana Jones and other movies too much, instead of focusing on itself. And uh, it's said that the Rocketeers creator Dave Stevens acknowledged. I don't know if this is apocryphal, but. He, he was satisfied with 70% of the film. And he highly praised Joe Johnston's direction. He said, quote, The overall spirit and sweetness of the series is still there intact, he remembers. Uh, we lost some good character stuff in editing for time, but the tone of it still was what I was trying to project in the comic pages. I also thought Joe's casting choices were excellent. To his credit, Joe did not fill out the cast with a bunch of Beverly Hills 90210 Barbie and Ken types. <laughs> and he found Billy Campbell to be a good-looking guy, but he but he also happens to be Cliff. I would never have cast him based on good looks alone, but he came into the audition and he just nailed it shut. And he was made for it. The part was his. So, you know, that's... Uh, I think that's the best you can do, you know, and if the, the creator, he, 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 you know, 70% of it, he was fine with, but, you know, f from the beginning of uh, the process of making the Rocketeer, creator Dan Stevens and Bilson and DeMeo envisioned this, of course, as we said, as the first in entry in a trilogy at Disney, of course, hoped for a franchise. And, of course, both Campbell and Connolly were contracted for sequels. And this is interesting. Campbell for two more, Connolly only for one. And uh, plans for the Rocketeer sequels were abandoned in July 1991. That did not take very long. After the film was a disappointment at the box office. And uh, as of 2012... Disney uh, was reported to be developing a remake of The Rocketeer, and in 2016 it was confirmed that Walt Disney uh, Pictures would be rebooting it, this time as The Rocketeers. I guess they were trying to make this more of a, uh, a uh, legacy character, you know? Anybody could be The Rocketeer if he's got the pack, you know? doesn't have to be a sequel directly to the same guy, you know? So this reboot sequel basically would have taken place six years after the original film with a black female pilot in the role. And I've heard a lot of the fake uh, fanboys uh, having tantrums about that one. How dare you have a black female uh, rocketeer, you know? And, uh, of course, the film's plot would then see her take on the mantle of the Rocketeer after Cliff has gone missing while fighting the Nazis. So then, of course, they were going to shift it then to the Cold War, and it was going to be about stopping a scientist from stealing the jetpack, you know, and shifting the balance of the Cold War. So that kind of reminds me more of, like, the last Indiana Jones of shifting it from Nazis to evil Rus Ruskies, you know? And uh, so, you know, this... 
sequel has been classified as in development or in development hell for for that whole time, almost a decade. And of course, it pops up in clickbait from time to time. But now we finally got an animated series based on uh, the comic book series. Now, here's the official uh, summary. The Rocketeer follows Kit, a young girl who receives a surprise package on her birthday, revealing that she's next in line to become the Rocketeer, a legendary superhero who has the ability to fly with the help of a rocket-powered jetpack. And that was a description, and it says, Armed with her cool new gear and secret identity, Kit is ready to take flight and save the day with her gadget-minded best friend Tesh and airplane mechanic Uncle Ambrose, who join in on her epic adventures. So although these... uh, live action sequels doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon but at least the film has its cult following here and in japan and it is enjoying a resurgence in the last several years and the original dave stevens comics are not only still in demand but they're selling well and but experiencing a new popularity and the movie memorabilia continues to have a ready audience and uh, IDW Publishing has reprinted and recolored the original graphic novel and has published multiple new series and I believe there's an ongoing series as well which will probably be like the fifth series now and uh, Disney of course as we've shown has wasted this property for the last what for decades and at least now they've allowed IDW to do something interesting with the character finally And of course, as with Betty Page, this is after the unfortunate passing of Dave Stevens, who died of cancer uh, several years ago, and uh, I think not long after Betty Page passed away. So at least the Rocketeer lives on, and in multiple ways, and uh, I think for the final verdict on the movie, is I think it's a good movie kept from being a great classic. I think it's the best jetpack movie, as far as centering on a jetpack. Yeah, well, it's the best for uh, jetpacks. Like, I I would agree with that. Like, not the best movie that happens to feature a jetpack, so much as the best jetpack movie. Almost the only jetpack movie, in a sense, because, like, yeah, the jetpack is the hook in this list movie, just and it's happens the point to feature a jetpack, basically. And I don't think many movies have that. And, and that just that, that whiz bang kind of idea of a jetpack in the most classic Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers kind of way, comic book kind of way. This is the live action version of that. And I think that's the best that that gets. And as far as a comic book adaptation, it's pretty damn good. Saturday morning, I take a turn at the skillet. I burn some eggs, boil coffee, drink a cup, then refill it. I read some pages of the paper, mostly look at the pictures. There's a drip at the faucet, so I fumble with the fixture. We take our own showers, wash our own hair, make our own beds, push in our own chairs. I thought all this stuff would get done for me. A robot moves along while I sit under a tree. I thought we'd control wind and rain, cure all sickness, eliminate pain. I wouldn't mind reading gadgets, to cater to my wishes. Want a self-cleaning kitchens and non-sticking dishes. Where's the end of all freedom disease? Where's the milk and honey? See, 
Tennessee And where all the crime-free cities Rockets on our backs And where all the smooth-moving sidewalks Hey, where's my jet? Flying around with our own jet <laughs> packs. 